As our society continues to unveil fractures within its social and political systems, the show, Align Traced, aims to examine topics that are immediate, pressing, and impact the built environment in ways that require urgent architectural responses. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Hi, my name is Otolo, and together with Ferial Massoud and Maria Poutry, Iradie, we will be presenting a four-part series on the question of how colonial structure and mechanism extend into the modern day in supposedly decolonized states. We've decided to focus on our respective context. In the previous episode, Feria looked at Egypt. In the next episode, Maria will be looking at Indonesia. And today, in this episode, I will be looking at Burkina Faso. It will be a journey into different architectural practices in an effort to highlight reciprocities in apparent antagonized territories. Reciprocal landscapes, a term coined by Jane Hutton, means to look at how are the faraway invisible landscape where material comes from related to the highly visible urban landscape where those same materials are installed. We are interested in extraction in different forms and the impact it can have on the way culture materializes itself. We are now joined by Richard Enna, a multidisciplinary designer who will share with us his research on artifact extraction. His thesis, A Culture of Craft, West Africa Unobjectified, looks at the lobby of Burkina Faso and explore how objects of that tribe were crafted within the respective context and the various infrastructure that have existed and persist in allowing the sacred object to find themselves disassociated from their socio-religious premises. Inevitably, we seek new ways to find accountability and facilitate healing in order to build in many forms. Um, so, Richard, I would like to ask you if you could talk about the premises of your project and what made you want to look at your particular topic? Sure. So I have, from a young age, I have, I've grown to have a deep interest in furniture making, uh, chairs in particular. Um, when I was quite young at school, uh, football was uh, a big thing of mine. I was scouted. I was hoping to actually maybe pursue that. But then quite a big injury forced me when I was at school to... Um, weirdly designed a chair for my dorm room because um, I had nothing else to do. And so from the age of 13 to 18, I ended up designing and crafting three chairs uh, made of hardwoods using steel. So I acquired all those skills from that point. And when I went into um, sort of uh, fifth year studying architecture at VAA, we were told to uh, pick an object um, in part of uh, Diploma 6 with Nana Guillermo uh, uh, Fusu, Jack Self, and Guillermo Ibanez. And so I naturally picked um, the chair of the Lobby people because around that time, I'd actually been increasingly interested in West African furniture. And the long story short, um, I, I watched like a, a documentary by Isamu Noguchi on YouTube called uh, There's no such, no such Thing as Time. And he was, he was like thoroughly sort of enthusiastic as I was about the Lobby chair. And in looking further into the uh, Lobi culture beyond the three-legged stool, I found their bataba. And looking into the bataba as part of the unit study to, uh, called Eye Objects, we had to look at this object and begin to extrapolate everything about the object, this historiography, how it was crafted, the context, um, how it was placed within the, the Lobi culture. And that then began to open up like a kind of worm to the guard to like... Um, not only Lobi material culture, but West African material culture, how it was then and how it operates now. Those objects you're talking about, 
were, I mean, discovered, if we call, call it discovered, at a very particular time uh, in history. And my question is, uh, what does this infatuation for those artifacts says about the French Empire, because they were the ones who were interested in those artifacts? Yeah, if you could talk about the, the connection, basically, between uh, French colonization and those objects. Sure. I think the biggest thing you can realize, you can speak about lobby objects, lobby crafted objects, but Tabor as a precursor, representative of just West African material culture, craft culture in general, without inherently knowing or ever really knowing the reason by which these objects were made or why they were crafted, the context behind them. Somehow these objects were able to have this universal appeal uh, formally that not only was intrinsically linked to the Lobi people, but was uh, aesthetically uh, allured by uh, people from other nations like the French or Europeans, and how this was able, able to communicate this fantastical archetype of the other and was so inherently different from uh, Western modes of uh, creativity or formal representation. It was so attractive that also the I idea of like um, ownership of these objects um, was something that I guess uh, colonial administrators or ethnographers at the time could not overlook. Um, not only did were they fascinated by looking at these objects, but they also felt the need to um, have objects of their own, uh, take some of these objects back with them, commission some of these objects to be crafted. It's also, in my mind, a sign of how incredible, universally appealing um, these objects were and how they were crafted and the inherent beauty that was um, that cross-cultural lines, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And where were those objects exhibited when they were taken by um, the different travelers that went to? Sure. I mean, so, I mean, the main, the main story is that um, at the time, initially, I think there was an agreement between the British and the French, um, I think in 1897. The British sort of um, ceded dominion over the Lobby land to the French around that time. And, well, no, in the, in the late... 19th century. And in that moment, French colonial um, administrators uh, like Labore, they began to commission uh, Bataba by, uh, well, in particular, there was, there was a very famous lobby craftsman called Sakare, and he was uh, commissioned uh, by French administrators to craft uh, sort of uh, relic forms of Lobi Bataba. And this was around the time, well, after, obviously after the Enlightenment period in Europe, when modes of uh, mechanical production, print, but also of, um, of art was becoming more prescient. So the notions of then creating identical copies of pieces, uh, which wasn't something that was particular to Lobi culture, was sort of uh, exported into Lobi culture through uh, administrators like Labore, who were commissioning pieces to be made that no longer fitted socio-religious archetypes. They were no longer sort of um, idiosyncratically made or individual pieces. These were made sort of um, en masse. And these objects were made uh, to then be extracted, uh, taking back to sort of anthropological buildings or sites like the uh, Musée Trocadero at the time. And these buildings um, then became spaces that would house objects of the world, quote unquote. And uh, the physical extraction of these objects was a means by which they could have a physical record to showcase the world to the French public. So these places, uh, these uh, institutions in France that were initially also, also commissioning, or even anthropologists that were commissioning French administrators, but later ethnographers to then collect these objects as part of a scientific record keeping. These uh, architectures that saw these objects then became institutions that would showcase objects to the world and later become museums. So it was actually then sort of this uh, pursuit of investigating the other 
which then informed sort of uh, museumification or museum culture. I see. Um, and why do you think it was necessary for them to create this other and they were so focused on, on that? Um, so there was something called, uh, if I can recall quickly. Um, so there's uh, the ethos of uh, transcendentalism. Uh, there are two texts in particular. There's uh, by Emmanuel Kant and also um, Hegel's uh, Aesthetics. Um, where they uh, essentially define the other through art form. So another writer called Stoller, he writes um, primitive cultures. Um, so this was in the around uh, late 18th century. So Stoller writes primitive cultures were allegedly collective rather than individualistic, religious rather than secular, timeless rather than historically dynamic, and characterized by intuitive rather than rational thought processes. Um, essentially what, what um, they were trying to do within Europe, they were trying to create this sort of um, hierarchy of um, artistic production. So because uh, they viewed their, uh, their, their Christian belief system as a superior um, uh, religious practice um, and viewed sort of these other individuals as pagans or a-religious or savages in a sense, then the objects that were created in connection to these belief systems had a hierarchy. So then they viewed sort of uh, the objects of the others as these primitive objects within this uh, within this sort of um, ranking system. And so the idea of um, uh, removing these objects was not only a, a means of um, uh, removing um, almost the, in the act of defeating said people's removing the objects that gave them supposed power, but also as a means by which they could then present these savages to the world through their objects, as opposed to necessarily having to present the people. So this obsession with the other was a way to kind of, um, to create categories and to justify the superiority of the West. And in a way it legitimized um, colonization, I think. So it's interesting in that way. And also the way they were looking at, in that record, because you have this year, okay, they were looking at, um, Africa and West Africa in general as this uh, barren place, this idea of tabula rasa. Mm. My question is, in order to counter kind of this idea, could you describe the, the lobby artifact more preci precisely and how, and how does it sit within this very specific um, social and religious context? It did sit before. Um, so the Lobi, uh, they collectively believe in uh, a, fimil, uh, uh, a similar Garden of Eden-esque premise. So uh, their god, who they call um, alternatively Thangabayu, um, he was uh, the creator of all. He created the world also in seven days and he also rested on the, on the last day. And um, he was content in creating all his children at the time. Um, although at one... Uh, Sorry, can I ask you... Um, do you know if this depiction of their cosmology happened, was influenced by the, the French Catholic Church or is it something that actually they were aware of? Um, from, what, from what I believe, this, uh, this belief system was before um, the French interacted with the Lobby. Mm -hmm. from what I know, because I don't, from what I, from what I believe... Uh, the only the religious influence since has been like a Christian-based one. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked enough into sort of, um, being honest, the premise of their belief system. Mm. But I, from my research, um, it seems that this was their belief system through the objects that was um, 
quite some time before the French came into the land. I mean, what you would, what is equally interesting is the fact that a lot of these um, uh, tribes within the area have a similar uh, way of um, uh, have similar social religious systems that are craft based or even um, earthen based through like the uh, molding of forms that are within the vicinity of the earthen dwelling. So which implies some kind of um, maybe core origin in a sense in which maybe groups then began to spread out and become more individualistic. Interestingly as well, because I know you were, because you were looking at like different um, ethnical group from the region and also the Dogon, the Dogon in Mali, how I don't remember the detail, but they kind of discovered those two stars before even the NASA. Mm. So like this, like this other way of knowing that still was able to accomplish, I mean, to discover things that were like that were discovered with like Western tool. I just thought it was interesting to look at like looking at this region before colonization, because we often tend to talk about them as if uh, there was nothing before and then colonization mm. happened and then you define this place of the world through mostly the fact that there was colonization and there were things after. But yeah, sorry, if you could continue and no, sure. talk about the context. No, thank you. Um, so they began to multiply into um, uh, God's children and in that time, uh, men would begin to clash amongst one another, um, uh, fighting over women, funnily enough. And then um, sort of in his shame of his children's acts, God decided to turn his back on them. Similarist to the idea of the fall, but within a different context. And he then curtailed direct contact with him. Um, although like in his benevolence, he crafted, he he sent forth the filler. So the filler are these spiritual entities which are meant to be intermediaries by which the lower people can contact them to then contact God. So what the um, Bataba are, which are crafted by village craftsmen, are physical like uh, anthropomorphic uh, or humanistic um, manifestations of the thinner. So these are then intermediaries by which they craft for specific purposes, by which uh, for particular reasons or supposed outcomes, that are um, uh, animist um, uh, conduits to contact God. And so these objects, they're tended to by the village diviner called the Thildar, and um, he used this meticulous uh, didactic divination process um, to contact the Thildar, and then he then sort of, in this 45-minute ritual sacrificial process of drawing chalk, using various different batavas of different sizes for specific purposes, he then, um, in the 45 to one hour minute process, would then um, sort of uh, write down these messages almost like in a trance, almost possessed in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then these messages would then be conveyed to the rest of the uh, community as prohibitions. Mm -hmm. And um, this, uh, the diviner is, is um, so this is, um, these objects are domesticated. They're 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 within the um, the dith field. Uh, they're within the the fieldu, so the domestic shrine room, which is within the uh, larger uh, familial dwelling. And this shrine room, this earthen shrine room, is, is often then within like sort of uh, the room that's the f uh, directly the furthest away from the main entrance, facing an east to west orientation to facilitate spiritual passage. And there's also like a, a light opening above. 
So in a sense, these objects actually are domestic items. Um, and then it's representative of like the social structure. Mm. Again, it's interesting because you don't have one particular head of the tribe, for example, right? No, not technically. Technically not, but you could argue there's one. Exactly. And so how, like, because there's not what, had, it's very difficult to invite, invade those type of territories. Because yeah. I'm, I'm talking about my own experience and my own research, how the Gohunsi of Burkina Faso, basically, they don't, they, they have an earth priest and they have an earth chief in a way, but they don't have one particular entity that rule over everyone. Mm. So yes, it was kind of difficult for the French to, um, to take hold of them. Yeah. And so my question is for the, the lobby, how, similarly, how did they interact at first with the, the French colonial power? Sure. Um, I mean, so historically, actually, the lobby is actually, they, they have a history of um, sort of mass migration within the, the I think, the, the Delta, the Black, Black Volta in the Ghana region, um, initially as like um, farming, herding groups, agricultural groups, um, who were often actually uh, fleeing from other larger um, uh, slave catching uh, groups within the region, mm -hmm. uh, based within uh, who were of West African origin, and um, you can even see in the kind of architecture they built, um, particularly when the French were um, were present in Lobby Land, that it became increasingly sort of uh, turret like, mm -hmm. and even I, I, it, it seems to me that it it, it became sort of um, more defensive, almost like a fortress. Uh, to act as a protective mechanism against sort of the French who were going from like location to location, mm -hmm. uh, have uh, exerting their dominion, and so the 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 lobby historically have become hardened, and the French interaction with them was very difficult. Um, even actually, um, so particularly um, as you mentioned, because there's no centralized sort of leader, mm -hmm. um, and the main the reason why. Um, that is difficult is because uh, so within the West they had like um, uh, uh, they had like a, a royal family or, or maybe even um, a government of sorts and so that structure would be easier uh, co-opted uh, within West African cultures that had like sort of a kinship um, lineage because if then say they have dominion over the king the same king they then convey messages or instructions to would then have dominion over said people but if, for example, the lobby have no um, uh, recognizable figure, uh, it, it proved increasingly difficult. So historically, there were loads of uh, back and forth battles between um, the lobby and the French, um, very bloody instances. And there was never, whilst there periods of calm, there was never really a point by which the lobby would um, uh, 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 collectively um, recognize the French as their leaders unlike other uh, West African groups did and even it's testament to them even to this day um, they sort of um, I mean for example the, the government in Burkina Faso would uh, try and make um, them pay their taxes and their, their the way they respond um, in tax payment would be like uh, responding with arrows the other way so I think it's just testament to them historically that they um, they don't sort of uh, they will not inherently see to 
other forms of rulership organization, social organization, uh, which is testament to them in my mind. Than the kind of mystic one. Yeah. Um, again, for example, in the context of the Gouvernance of Burkina Faso, because of extraction and the gold extraction, because that was what I was looking at, mm. um, what becomes important then is like to extract the gold. And so the spirituality that's related to the land kind of loses its power. Mm. And so the land becomes just like a product. So you see a marketization of the land and you see how because of that through time the architecture changes. Mm. Uh, it doesn't really make sense of itself anymore. Mm. And so you were explaining how because of this encounter with I mean, the slave trader and colonization, the architecture of the lobby changes and be changed and became more defensive. Mm. So I was wondering now, how does it look like and how does it answer to modernity? Okay, I mean, it's a good question. So, I mean, there isn't sort of, from what I've seen, there isn't, um, there probably is, but I haven't found today like academic literature on this, but I have seen for myself how it has changed just by images online. So it's become almost, hybrid's the word, but I wish that was a different word, um, hybridized with use of uh, more contemporary uh, structures, sort of like having the metal roofs um, before, yeah, metal roofs above um, the earthen uh, structures. Um, they used to traditionally have just um, uh, like an oval, an ovalish opening that was sort of more tapered inwards at, at the base. And then these then became sort of wooden doors. Um, in some cases, um, with, with then the, uh, the earth structures with the tin roofs, there'll then maybe be an additional concrete structure nearby that'd be more permanent for, uh, or, or made of like... Um, uh, uh, concrete blocks um, that will then be used to permanently house uh, the, uh, things like chickens and other um, um, animals um, for longer periods of time. Um, but at the same time, you also see then uh, a migration of some lobby groups into the city um, in some cases. Um, so in some cases, the architecture at the core remains the same, but um, there have been sort of in uh, particular additions that uh, look, are quite interesting to me in how maybe this can inform a kind of architectonic future that is traditional at the core, but then has contemporary additions that would somehow be of benefit, that wouldn't take away from what it means to be lobby or what it means to uh, construct as a lobby individual or through a lobby um, aesthetic style. So when this phenomenon of like how when this change this change happen and you go for more traditional houses to um I don't think modernized is the world word, mm. but to contemporary to more con to contemporary uh housing typology, would you say that there is it's starting to lose its its core, in a way, there's a unification within all of those, like like the lobby house is not so particular mm. um, compared to other type of houses that you might see in the continent in rural context in West Africa. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it ultimately depends how it's done. Um, I mean, the biggest lesson I took was when I was designing my project, I, I read 
um, I was initially in conversation with sort of um, about the idea of maybe uh, my project, which we'll discuss later, of having like prescribed housing for said Lobi peoples. Mm. But then I read a text by Labril Prasan, and she she mentions how I think by the Volta, you know, put the name of the rural group. Um, they these were uh, rural groups that would traditionally construct their own dwellings. Mm-hmm. But then what I think like uh, I think they were creating like a, a dam, so they had to displace some groups. And so they then decided in displacing these groups, so then actually create housing for them to accommodate them in forcing them off their land. Mm-hmm. But this became a failure, complete abstract, uh, complete failure because um, they completely uh, f- um, sort of weren't sensitive to not only the fact that these groups would build their own houses, but then the act of placemaking, the ritual behind even selecting the land. Um, preparing the land, um, marking the land, and then constru- uh, the community coming together to build each dwelling is intrinsic um, and inextricably linked to the idea of feeling at home. So then creating someone's home was devoid of any sort of personal relation to that. So they could never conform the idea of living in this space. But also the idea of creating these prescribed spaces that were made of more of, of um, uh, materials that had more permanence meant that there was no longer a need to then maintain the home. And obviously in, in Western notions, the idea having uh, more uh, permanent materials for uh, domestic construction is good because it means it lasts longer, you don't have to maintain it, it's cost effective. But then um, the very idea of having to continually come together and have this haptic relationship with maintaining this perishable earthen material creates this increasing or, or ongoing link with the architecture. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, um, it, pertaining to the lobby, it just really depends um, how far you go with the idea of, um, of the home. I think it, essentially there has to be a lot of autonomy um, with how, um, going forward, how, with how they choose or where they even choose to have the home. I think it's, 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 it, it, it goes far beyond just the plot of land and then how many walls, how many materials is then the very sort of um, process by which that is done. So then you as an architect, as difficult as it can be, where do you position yourself in relation to that? Um, and if you could talk more about your project, because there's part of an architectural re- resolution within that. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, so the initial idea was, I mean, in, in designing the project, in even approaching this project, there was a lot of uh, relearning I had to do. Um, there's a lot of um, taught like biases or tropes I had in my mind that I had to forego completely in order to create something that made somewhat sense relevant to those, to set peoples. And um, the biggest thing in my mind was, uh, would it, wouldn't it be the case of like me, self-ordained architects, designing said architecture for said peoples and expecting said incredible result. I sort of had this hypothetical idea of myself, said architect with my, my team, uh, we, would, um, uh, we would sort of uh, meet or consult with uh, Lobi master masons. So master masons will often be uh, consulted by a land chief, a man who would, in leaving his, fa- his father's home would have found a wife um, found the correct parcel of land. He then consult this, this master mason who not only is the, the crafter of the dwellings and has um, 
his apprentices under him, but he also then sort of oscillates between the spiritual and the physical realm and um, abides by sort of uh, uh, Lobi's uh, social religious principles to ensure that not only the buildings stand, but the spirits protect this architecture um, beyond the construction process. So the idea for myself was then would architects then consult master masons? The architect will come with uh, additional earthen techniques, sort of the idea of rammed earth, um, um, uh, using like uh, construction trenches, um, and then uh, working alongside master masons with the, the, well, they use a material called banco, which is similar to adobe. And uh, could we somehow uh, collaborate and create a kind of architecture that not only is uh, sensitive to Lobi constructive techniques, but then is informed by uh, uh, not even necessarily contemporary, but cross-cultural um, earthen principles of construction that would um, exemplify Lobi construction in some way, if that was even possible. So rammed earth has been around within West Africa for uh, years, for millennia even, but could there be some kind of architecture that could um, be sort of this idealistic form of construction that would have uh, intrinsic spiritual principles, but then have high aesthetic value that would still look lobby whilst being somewhat different. So the ideas of maybe having a, a round earth core and then uh, fashioning this around earth uh, wall with um, lobby, the banco striations, which would often be um, the, the constructed dwelling the Maison Sukala in, in these um, earthen like layers of earth. And so have this really beautiful um, uh, steration across the whole facade. So if you then construct with, for example, rammed earth, which is stronger, you could, you could build that uh, much taller. If you then fashion the surface with these um, uh, banco steurations, this would then act as a protective um, uh, layer for the, um, the rammed earth core. And if you look at, for example, the Mosque of Dijen, which has these um, beautiful building, the community, again, come, uh, 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 collaborate annually. They come together annually to then maintain the architecture. Could you then perhaps, uh, and then they climb up the, the facade and the facade has these, uh, uh, these timber punctures within the walls. Could then in this, in, in this proposal, could you have uh, timber punctures within the walls, allowing the, the structure to be taller? But then also this would then allow people to then climb up the architecture and maintain it um, regularly if need be because it's of a perishable banco. But also aesthetically, it looks beautiful, right? And then looking at, um, I think it's in, in Mali. Uh, I forgot the name of the couple. Um, there's a French um, NGO or even like a startup who are uh, collaborating with locals to construct like housing that's informed from the, the, uh, the Nubian vault. And I looked, I looked into that and how they 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 dig these um, deep trenches with um, using um, uh, rocks at the trench, which acts as a great um, a, a water drainage system. So could this? I then thought, okay, could this then be sort of the foundations for this quite um, substantial earthen architecture? So things like this, it it it, it everything sort of um, it wasn't even actually that hard at the time because everything sort of. All the all the pieces fit together, um, and I was I, I was adamant not to deviate away from materials that weren't locally, that couldn't be locally sourced. So timber was locally sourced from my site, um, and even at, even at the correct heights of the particular species, um, it, it was a clay rich um, site, so that could accommodate um, 
um, Earth and Construction, both with Rammed Earth and the Banco. Um, there were, um, looking into the geological profile of the site as well, there were going to be rocks, I think, about um, uh, uh, further down below, if you, if you dug beyond the high uh, clay-rich um, uh, upper, surf, upper layer. So everything, um, the stars sort of aligned in that sense. I tried not to deviate away and try and force the project in a sense. Just to go back to <clears throat> the Bateba and the artifact, mm. um, it's important to talk about the idea of reparation. Mm. And because a lot of those objects, the culture surrounded, surrounding it was lost. So I just want you to talk more about how reparation enters the pictures and how the object um, kind of generate the architecture. So there's there's a report by uh, Falwin Saar and Benedict Savoy that was commissioned by uh, President Macron in 2018 after his speech in Burkina Faso and Ugudugu where he initially promised to... Um, that France would begin to return uh, West African material uh, culture objects. That was his promise. Um, so he commissioned this report called The Restitution of West Af Af African Heritage, um, ETC, uh, which is written by the, those two academics I mentioned before. And the most interesting thing, they, they essentially set up uh, a judicial structure by which objects could, it creates like a, a, a process by which objects could be legally um, investigated and returned. Um, so the, the most important thing for me that I read was you shouldn't you shouldn't actually assume that every object in a museum should be returned. Because um, I think I think with all these arguments, there's 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 a lot of nuance that is overlooked. Whilst it is likely that quite a substantial amount of objects should be returned, um, the initial process of supposed repatriation should involve like a very sort of surgical investigation of every, each and every single object, looking into who owned it, where it came from, how it was extracted. And if you can then with this said objects through this interrogation, find a legal basis by which this object was immorally or illegally extracted, then for sure there is a basis by which this object should be returned. Um, and I think by this process, if there's like a collaboration between said nation that makes the claim of said objects and then the maybe France who holds these objects, this sort of collaborative process will not only enrich the embedded knowledge that resides within each object, but then this will then um, increase the um, like sort of the intellectual capital by how uh, increase the greater understanding of these objects, but also then has a legal remit by which. Uh, something like this cannot be renamed because it has sort of a judicial capacity, right? Um, but in my mind, it's, it's not even, it goes far beyond the idea of just returning said objects. It's the idea of, say you return these objects, what then is the next step by which these objects can exist in a different, within a different context? Because um, there are projects um, to date which... Um, which, uh, without even needing to name them, is just the idea of, say we return uh, said objects from a said nation into West Africa. Um, the the most sort of the most sort of the idea that comes to most people's mind most people's minds is then okay, let's just have a, a, a museum, but instead it happens to be in West Africa. But the biggest issue for me is the fact that the museum 
or even the idea of museum museumification is um is not a, a, an African ideology in of itself. Um, so there's this, there's a work called, I think it's Kunschnutz. So it's, it's a book by Dan Hicks uh, called The Brutal Museum. So Kunschnutz is a German word, which was basically when uh, two nations were at war, uh, it was particularly during the world, Second World War, when they're going to, like the Germans were going to say France, they find these beautiful Renaissance paintings that then hold these supposed objects on their behalf until the war was over, then they would supposedly return them. But in the case of West African objects, these objects have never been returned, ironically, right? So in that case, for me, it's like, okay, say we return these objects. If the Lobi objects were had a, a domestic, um, were originally within a domestic setting, should these objects actually, when returned to Lobeland, should they have a domestic capacity? Should they be re-domesticated in some senses? Um, the, the biggest, one of the biggest uh, failings now well, uh, with the Western, uh, well, within the, the global art market, which within, uh, of antiquity in a sense, which uh, West African uh, craft culture is at the center, is um, there's, there's sort of a Western view of um, uh, West African objects in this sort of um, uh, rarefied, um, uh, antiquated view in which they 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 uh, they, they consider uh, this sort of untouched West Africa of the past to be uh, West African is in its most beautiful form before it was tainted by uh, uh, colonial and post-colonial tropes. And in that, what happens is now a West African craftsman or even African craftsman would craft objects based off old aesthetic form to then uh, appeal, uh, appeal to um, a contemporary uh, taste for sort of um, uh, galleries, exhibition spaces. And so um, objects would be crafted to, uh, to mimic what was oops, as opposed to what could be. Um, and in that sense, uh, what I'm saying is, could there be a, a new forms of creative culture or craft culture which would try to actually look forward as opposed to look back or not even try to desecrate uh, not even try to commodify what's sacred or commodify culture in a sense. Um, and also beyond that, um, as earlier mentioned, the, the ideas of not only the craftsman, but the, um, um, the, the diviner, the master mason, the family, how do these individuals then sit within the context of these said return objects? Um, I think, so what I'm, what I'm essentially trying to say is, um, we have to look far beyond um, what even we consider um, uh, how these objects could be sort of uh, recontextualized. We have to almost place the object at the center and then uh, go step by step to extrapolating everything that this object informs or what it could, or what it could be informed by. Um, and that will begin to then inform new forms of um, uh, West African or African existence within the contemporary setting. We have to, we have to rethink almost everything in a sense. Okay. So we shouldn't be scared of um, of creating something new, and then we shouldn't be too. I'm asking if that's what you're trying to say. Too yeah. attached to the idea of maybe tradition and try to go beyond. Yeah. But we should be careful about who is actively doing that, yeah. and not like recreate era of the past and include. Um, the people that are concerned by 
Yeah, it's, it's, those it's a sense we, we have to relook at maybe what the past was and then see how this can exist in the contemporary setting, but then placing the past at the center. There's, there's so, uh, the issue with globalism is that there's so much influence, in particular from Western hegemony into other nations, that it's, it's hard for people even to remember or even conceive what it means to be of their own culture. And um, it's, 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 it's good in a sense of, yes, global community, all these UN tropes, but at the same time, I think uh, idiosyncrasy and like um, uniqueness is more important. And I think the diversity of the world is what makes the world so interesting, not sort of everyone being the same. Yes. But, okay, my last question is, while doing that, how do, you, do we avoid to recreate those asymmetric power relations? I think, um, particular, there's a, um, I think you actually mentioned to me the book by Felwyn Saar, the Afrotopia. I think there's an attempt, there's a, people have, well, nations, tri- groups, um, cultures have to begin to look inwards to then look forwards, in my mind. As in to say, it's not in a case of then, we shouldn't deny any everything that comes from other cultures, but there has like groups have to be more or nations have to be more selective with what they choose to then uh, include within their practice or their operation. So there's some things that will be of benefit, and there's some things, whilst maybe on the surface level would be a good thing to incorporate, they shouldn't. And I think it's just a case of being more selective and then looking more inwards to go forwards and 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 going, in a sense, going against the grain. Um, I, I made a point of, um, in my thesis, of like how China, towards um, uh, gaining sort of uh, quite impressive, well, the, the, the time period by which it's sort of uh, growing to prominence is very short in comparison to other nations. You know, a lot of nations had feudalist states. They had um, the mechanical revolution. Um, uh, they then have, well, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution. Whereas China has literally uh, forgot all these processes within literally like no time at all. My, my argument was that uh, West African groups or West African cultures could actually maybe look at craft-based economies uh, to to um, to somehow progress. And this was actually mentioned in um, a, uh, well, Demis Walker has mentioned this a lot. How maybe within Nigeria um, uh, we should look at uh, uh, local craft or community craft as a means by which we can um, have some kind of uh, intrinsic trade. So I think there's there's a lot there that just hasn't been really been realized or looked uh, upon in sort of the right light. Okay, that is really exciting to conclude the episode on, on like asking people to question like the current value system and mm. what can they do at their own scale. Yeah. Um, and it is quite exciting. Thank yeah. you. Very welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, that's been a fascinating take from Richard Aina. He offered interesting way of subverting the status quo by first making us question to generally portrait dependency of the global south on the global north. Richard showed us that the Global South was in fact instrumental in enriching the Global North, not only materially, but also conceptually. 
He also asked us to go beyond this relationship and gave us a glimpse of what building in a new paradigm could look like. He taught us that shifting the dominant narrative is necessary in creating a new world that could aspire to be truly decolonial. Our next episode focuses on a very different type of colonial relationship. Thank you for listening and don't hesitate to check out the show notes for additional information.